I'm reading today from Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desperate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. This is the word of the Lord. And I wanna encourage you to keep your Bibles open to Mark chapter one. Uh, at the risk of uh, greeting you yet a dozenth time, is that a word? I don't know. Um, uh, my name is Evan Skelton. If this is, if you're just now logging on with us, and I am just so excited that this is, wow, so many of you are going to be joining us in this way for weeks to come, um, and you have support from our church to do so, I am really glad that this space is soon enough to be filled with God's people worshiping him together. And so I, uh, again, want to highlight that next week, June 14th, will be our first service for gathered worship, um, and we hope that you will join us, um, though we encourage you to consider that regathering with caution, especially if you are in that high-risk category. You know, um, I, uh, as we get together, I have to tell you, um, I just, my, my heart is very heavy today uh, in opening God's Word. Um, and I, I'm, I have to tell you, I was, I was going to say this in a second, but it's mine as well now. I was even considering changing our text today because of how heavy my heart was and how much as a pastor, as somebody who's entrusted as a shepherd of God's people, in light of the chief shepherd I have to honor, I was considering changing not God's word, but looking for a different text that would speak to the present headlines, and then I opened Mark chapter 1 to the parable, not to the parable, but to the narrative of the leper and Jesus' healing, and found it to be one, I, I don't know if you're, you're, hopefully will see this with me, but this is one of the most timely passages we could ask for. God's kind to us. So I encourage you to keep your Bibles open, but I was going to, rem I was remarking with a friend, if you could have told me two weeks ago that 2020 would, was going to get even more polarized, that events were going to even get more difficult to handle, I would not believe you. I would not have believed you. Let's just remind each other that the whole world right now is shut down to an unprecedented pandemic. Add to that, we just surpassed 100,000 deaths in the United States alone to COVID-19. And more than 40 million Americans have joined the ranks of the unemployed. And yet, how much did you hear about that on Facebook this week? Who could have expected that the headlines and the Twitter feeds would become swirling with even more pressing news surrounding the murder of George Floyd? And we have to say that the, the, the unjust murder, and that's what it is, of George Floyd, a, a black man who was suffocated under the knee of a white police officer, it's 
set off something of a powder keg of unrest in our nation, to put it lightly. And the city erupted in protest, which at least at this point, the majority of them have been peaceful, although some have been violent. It's interesting to watch as a pastor too about how many process these events and how many dismiss George Floyd's death as, reg- as regrettable, <clears throat> certainly. We'd even call it a murder, but many would disregard it as an isolated incident. And yet others, they hear these headlines differently. In her recently released book, Mother to Son, an African-American woman writes to her African-American son, my fear for you, my son, is not so much that you will be lynched like Emmett Till. Make no mistake, I will train you as I was trained to respond to authority in a way that will make you appear as non-threatening and compliant as humanly possible. And I will hope and pray that this compliance will serve as some kind of barrier against the brutality that your young black form may incur. I will watch every news story of a black man gunned down by police with a twinge of fear, wanting so badly to trust those who charged with protecting our communities would not harm you without just cause, but fearing every scenario where they might. How do Jasmine's Hol- Jasmine Holmes' words hit you? Are you confused by them? Do they irritate you? Do you feel like they're exaggerating? Do you grieve with Jasmine? Are you angry too at the injustice that she mourns? Are you unsure what to think? The thing is, Jasmine, we need to know this, she shares what many watching this and are gathered in this room, what we believe about the good news of Jesus Christ. And not only that, she, is an, she, she advocates for it. She, she openly proclaims it in her writing and in her speak, speech, in her speaking. But still, many Christians are prone to dismiss her fears, let alone the larger claims being made right now in our culture about systemic racism, about privilege and power, about white supremacy? Are these simply political concerns? Are they out of place to speak of on a Sunday morning or on a Saturday where this is being filmed? I think some of us would say so, but I don't think God's word would allow us. We should begin, and I think, how... How are we going to bring up these messy issues if they are worth bringing up? If, in fact, I think that Jesus wants us to talk about them, how are Christians to respond? We need to begin by listening to God's word. It's remarkable, again, that in in wanting to find a scripture that would speak to these events that God and his sovereignty gave us this one. And so would you keep up, keep open Mark chapter one, verses 40 through 45, looking at this text In two parts with me, the leper's plea and the Savior's approach. Who is this man, Jesus? That's the question going on in the crowds. It's the question, in many ways, we leave off with last week in our passage. You see, in a matter of months, this Nazareth nobody, as many knew him, he can't go anywhere now without a crowd. 
and for good reason too. It's not just that his words are impressive, it's that his words come with power, real power. He speaks differently than every teacher they've heard before, but, but he also has enough power to heal your daughter, your husband, your mother-in-law. He has power enough to rip demons from human persons and send them screeching on their way. For the first time in a long time, the people have hope in their eyes. But then he shows up, a leper. And doesn't he know better? You see, the scribes, they defined uh, leprosy um, as having as many as, they defined as many as uh, 72 different afflictions that could be under this category. Not only the uh, affliction that we know present day as leprosy. It was a condition that was not just difficult to diagnose, but it was even more difficult to treat since it referred to such a myriad of skin conditions. In fact, it was commonly assumed that uh, leprosy didn't just spread from person to person, but that leprosy was such a danger because it spread to clothing, it spread to, to homes, it spread even to landscape. It was believed that to pass even under a tree where a leper had sat was to render yourself unclean as well. Depending on the condition that would fall under this umbrella, maybe ugh, a ringworm or a boil or a scalp condition, these are pleasant things to talk about. These conditions, they might heal on their own, but until then, the only treatment was isolation to keep the community safe, which was the concern. A leper was sent out of town which I think, isn't this uh, timely? I think many of us, we would have trouble empathizing if we weren't in a global pandemic right now. Many of us are mourning weeks away from loved ones, forced apart to stop the spread of another contagion. But can you imagine what it would be like to learn that you needed to quarantine for the rest of your life? Told that you not, not only need to remain six feet away, as all of our chairs are here, but that you needed to remain a city block away. That so long as you were unclean, that you could never work your job again, and that you could never lived with your, live with your loved ones again, and this in a time without welfare or unemployment benefits. Leviticus in chapter 13, in fact, goes further, and it tells us a bit more about the condition that lepers faced um, and how they needed to conduct themselves. In verse 45, a leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. These restrictions, inspired by God, were meant for the good of the community. But over time, these protections became prejudices. As lepers were known more for the threat that they posed others than the image of God that they were made, made in. To become a leper was not just to be robbed of your physical health, but of your name, of your occupation, of your family and friends, your worshiping community. People might decide out of the goodness of their hearts to give you some charity, but you would mostly interact with others with a sense of fear. It was a pitiful state of existence, a cursed life, a death sentence. In fact, 
rabbis spoke of the leper as the living dead. It reminds me of some present-day realities, particularly for the Dalit class, caste, I'm sorry, Dalit caste in India, which is known as the untouchable caste, who are often provided uh, clay cups at establishments exclusively for their use. The purpose is that once they drink from that cup, that, that cup could be ground underneath their foot so that no upper caste customer would ever use it and risk being contaminated by their uncleanness. In Jesus' day, a leper, like so many Dalit today, a leper wasn't just an outsider, a leper wasn't just an outcast, the leper was viewed as a threat, a threat it was better not to see, let alone hear from. And now, this particular threat, this man was advancing on the disciples, coming toward Jesus. I mean, doesn't he know better? The lepers in Luke 17, because we hear about other lepers that Jesus has healed, healed, these lepers at least have the distance, they have the decency to cry out from a distance. But this man, he forces his way forward through the crowds. You can imagine mothers who are grabbing their children, men who are covering their mouths, backing away, demanding that the leper stop in his tracks, perhaps shouting, look out, teacher. Can you imagine these disciples whispering or perhaps saying out loud to one another, doesn't he have any shame? Doesn't he know he's breaking the law? Can you imagine the empty circle widening around him? The thing is, after the fall of humanity into sin, friends, human beings have been defining the other, the unlike. They have been forcing other human beings to the margins. Sometimes these, this happens out of a sense of fear, a sense of self-protection, a sense that that person is not like me, they don't look like me, they don't, they don't sound like me. At other times, it is a quiet drift as those who are in the majority stop hearing from the minority. They simply easily look past those who are on the margins. In Jesus' day, it was the leper it was the tax collector and the sinners. In ours, it might be the single mother, the immigrant Muslim, the unborn child, the black family in North City, the handicapped, the elderly widow, the homeless addict, the inmate or convicted felon. Of course, all of us are bearing our own share of suffering and difficulty. All of our lives are hard. But it should not be strange to say that there are some cultural institutions that we benefit from. That there are some cultural institutions that largely work out in favor of those who are in a, major, a majority. It's less likely for those then who are in the majority who bear, who, uh, who, who for whom these institutions work out in favor of, it's, it's less likely that they will call out and question the status quo. There's a risk in changing their lives. And this is something that human beings have been doing for generations and we find even in our scriptures. I have to tell you, friends, don't underestimate the power of sin and the potential of sin to blind us. It's one of the major metaphors for sin in the Bible, in fact. 
That sin causes us even to whitewash history, to shift blame, to identify the problem out there while ignoring the one in here. Don't underestimate the power of sin to make prejudice common. And because it is common, to make it seem excusable, even normal. You know, prejudice doesn't always or perhaps often show up as blind hatred or as blatant cruelty. Sometimes it shows up in the form of enduring skepticism or indifference. The thing is, is Christians should be the first to pull back the curtain on injustice and prejudice. It should not surprise them to find it even where they live, even in their own hearts. We believe, actually, about sin, that there is no place where sin has not infected, sin has not reached. It, we believe that there's no corner of our hearts, in fact, that are, not un, that are left untouched by sin. Is it so far a stretch of the imagination to imagine culture and institutions and systems and governments are untouched? We have a Bible, in fact, full of stories that show what sinful people make of their world. Imagine telling a Hebrew slave to get used to the heavy hand of Pharaoh or telling the exiled Israelites to see the good in Babylon or telling Daniel as he is being tossed to the lions that the government is there for his benefit or telling Jesus beaten and crucified at the hands of the Romans that he must have done something wrong to deserve it. We have example after example of the powerful using their power in evil and unjust ways against the vulnerable. We have example after example of how that injustice persists because the vulnerable remain voiceless. I remember in Exodus at its beginning, and it speaks of that cry reaching up to the Lord himself. You know, even our heroes are complicit in the Bible, whether it's Abraham turning a blind eye to the abuse of Hagar, Moses giving his people wrath instead of mercy, David using his throne to steal another man's wife and eventually murder her husband, Solomon plunging a nation into gross idolatry because of his sexual indecency, Paul presiding over the stoning of Stephen. Friends, we, as, as grateful as we are for our nation, as grateful as, as your pastor is for being an American citizen, for the institution of law enforcement, for those who have, who have and are serving in our military, and that includes so many of you who have served our city so well and our nation so sacrificially, we, we need to say that our history has been bloodied by racial injustice. White Christians including me, must join our black and brown brothers and sisters in Christ particularly in recognizing that racism and partiality and justice, wherever and however it occurs, is a problem. I want you to listen to these words from Acts 29. A Christian network of gospel-centered church-planting churches, a, a, a network of churches that preach and believe what we believe about Jesus may be hard for us to hear some of these words, but I think they put it clarifyingly. George Floyd's death plea, I can't breathe, has become the rallying cry for people who have experienced the suffocating grip of racial oppression and injustice. Racism is 
undeniably woven into the fabric of this nation from our treatment of Native Americans to the institution of slavery, segregation policies, and Jim Crow laws, redlining in urban sectors, and the ever-evolving covert and overt modern practices in our economic, political, social, and religious spheres of life. Black men and women live under the particularly heavy shadow of generational pain that is the result of gross inequality and inequity. Friends, after we live in a city where black men, women, and children were sold as property for over a century. That kind of legacy isn't just put behind us. It must certainly not be ignored, though I recognize it is uncomfortable to talk about. It should be. Every culture, every generation, and this goes to what we understand about sin, is slow to identify its sins. Again, don't underestimate the power of sin to make us prone to protect ourselves rather than to listen, to laugh away those gross comments that are said um, at the dinner table, to dismiss the stories of others rather than to wonder if we might be wrong, to see a threat rather than a neighbor in need. The Bible assumes injustice, that there are those who are more prone to receive it, and that they are in need of immediate attention, particularly among those who know and love Jesus. This is what the statement and the movement Black Lives Matter is about. I know many who have responded to this hashtag, this trending statement with frustration. Let's just take the statement itself. They argue back, don't all lives matter? But imagine someone declaring in the first century, lepers matter. Making such a declaration does not in any way deny that all lives matter. Of course they do. Only that there are some lives which are suffering especially, which are ignored in their suffering, and they are in need of immediate attention. As Russell Moore, president of the ERLLC, points out, does that mean that we will know in every case how to see to it that racial injustices do not happen? No. The Samaritan probably did not have a comprehensive understanding of how to nurse the man beaten on the Jericho Road back to health. That does not mean he could, like the priest and Levite, avert his eyes. The first step toward doing right is, recognize, is to recognize that something is wrong. There are those around us, friends, who are pleading for us to hear. Do we hear them? Our God does. I want us to hear these words from Psalm 10, verses 12 through 15. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Bible, more we read closely, assumes injustice. But that is not all the Bible assumes, is it? Did you notice these words? God does not forget the afflicted. 
God sees their trouble. God takes their grief in his hand. God is the defender to the victims, helper to the fatherless. Which brings us back to the the leper who is kneeling in this dirt, the man on the margins, begging Jesus, please, if you will, you can make me clean. Number two, the Savior's approach. Now again, we need to notice the shock of this all. The crowd, it definitely is. This leper is not only uh, putting them at risk, he is breaking the law. Again, picture this empty circle widening. Picture everyone backing away from him except for Jesus. Now I want us to notice three things here actually about Jesus that are more shocking than the leper's indecency. The first is Jesus' anger. Now I realize your translation likely says that Jesus was moved with pity here. And certainly we have great evidence in the Bible of Jesus' compassion. Yet, perhaps the best translation for this particular phrase is something like moved with indignation or filled with anger. It's actually the same phrase that is used of Jesus when he sees the crowds mourning at Lazarus' tomb. But that doesn't make much sense to us, does it? Why would Jesus become angry? Well, I think there are a couple reasons, and we, we cannot say that it, it, it would seem initially that Jesus is angry because of the man's indecency, because he is breaking protocol, because he is breaking the law, but then Jesus goes and heals him, so it can't be it, that. There is one reason that I'll leave off for a second, but the main reason I want to highlight here has to do with the nature of sin. You see, kneeling in front of Jesus isn't just a desperate man pleading to be seen and to be healed. In front of Jesus is a living picture of the ravages of sin, of disease and death. Here is what sin does in this world. Here's a living picture of a world twisted and deformed, a world which he had made to be very good and has forced this man to the margins. And it makes Jesus angry. The thing is, Many of us struggle to find God's anger, even his wrath, as good news. It certainly isn't for those who are on the bad side of God's anger. But it turns out that we need an angry God because his anger indicates something. His anger indicates that our suffering matters to him, that it demands an answer. God's anger isn't good news for the leprosy, of course, any more than it's good news for uh, the oppressors and the abusers, any more than the justice of a courtroom is good news for a rapist or murderer. But it is good news for the victim. God's anger means that injustice won't be forever ignored, that pain won't forever go unaddressed, that it will have its answer and it will meet its undoing in the hands of our final judge. As Commentator and biblical scholar James Edwards puts it, when Jesus heals the man, it is as if the leprosy was dispelled by holy wrath. Want to know how we should respond in the face of evil? How should we respond in the face of injustice? We've already talked about we should not deny or overlook it, but in many ways, I think we should feel a sense of anger. Not the fly-off-the-handle kind of rage, a kind of anger which returns evil for evil, the kind of anger which has turned violent in our city. Instead, we should feel the kind of anger which says, this matters. 
My God hates this, and I do too. Sometimes the right response is not to remain cool-headed. We don't, in our anger, sin, but nonetheless, the essence of righteous anger, which Jesus himself faced, him, Jesus himself experienced, like in our passage, or when he turned over the tables in the temple, it's righteous anger many Christians could stand to learn from. But that isn't the only shocking thing about Jesus' approach. Number two, Jesus' touch. It is at this point that Jesus does something really important, something that would have likely been met with gasps and great concern. Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. Why? It may be something that we're tempted to glaze past without much of a second look, but let's remind ourselves of what has taken place in this book that we know from previous examples that Jesus can heal with a word. Every other healing that's happened in Mark is by him speaking it into existence. Why not here if he has the power? Why does he choose to deliver his healing to the leper with his hand? Remember what we have said about leprosy in the first century. It wasn't just a physical condition. It was a curse, a death sentence. The leper didn't just suffer from a plague. In many ways, the leper became a plague. Can you imagine what years of isolation like this would do to a man? Years of being avoided. Years without being touched, without being comforted, without being hugged. No one to cry with. Again, what a picture of how sin affects us. It doesn't just corrupt us physically. It distances us relationally. And the healing we need is as complex as our condition. Notice the language here. What did the man ask? To be made clean. Another word we're tempted to skip past. But notice it's different than healed. Every other place, including after this place, when Jesus brings this particular kind of miracle. It speaks of the person being healed, but why does he ask to be made clean? Because he needed not only for his condition to be removed, but the stigma too. He needed to be treated differently. He needed to be declared before all who would hear it that he was clean. Friends, we are the leper. So many of us know what it's like to be kept at a distance. And we fear God would keep us at a distance too. We don't, need just, we don't just need God to heal us. We don't just need God to forgive us, although our rescue cannot come without his forgiveness. We need God to bring us near. And so our wonderful, beautiful Savior reaches out and touches the man without a flicker of fear or disgust, without an ounce of selfishness. This man is touched perhaps for the first time in years. Jesus touches the untouchable in order that every stain, sorrow, and sore left by our sin would be evicted. The statement from Acts 29 goes on. God's heart is for the last, the least, the oppressed, the marginalized, the barren, and the poor. That's why God always moved towards the broken in Scripture. It's why Abel, the younger, was chosen over Cain. Sarah, the barren, given a child. Leah, the ugly, carried the seed of the Messiah over Rachel. David, the last, chosen over Saul as king. God's heart is always for the broken. Salvation came through our broken broken Savior. 
the sheer grace of God working through our lostness calls us to move toward the broken in accordance with the same pattern and likeness of his own character and work in the scripture. Think upon this, friends. If you are a Christian, Jesus has stretched his hand out to you saying, I will be clean. Let this fill up your heart and tell you are, no lo- you, are, you, are, you are not only willing to listen to the anguish of the poor, the marginalized, and the isolated, but to draw near to them yourself. Now, there is still one more shock in Jesus' approach, and that comes in these next verses. Number three, Jesus' exchange. There, before the wide-eyed disciples, the leper is made clean. But then Jesus does something really strange, perhaps even more strange than healing the leper. It says he sternly charged him. He warned him not to say anything to anyone about this. The only person he was to let know that he had been healed was the priest in charge of certifying his cleanness. After all, in the society, because they posed a risk to the community, they needed a community representative, the priest, to declare that the quarantine was over. If you notice, this isn't the first time, though, that Jesus is silent. Jesus silences those who want to testify about him. John Mark actually highlights this more than any of the other Gospels. Chapter 1 tells us that Jesus routinely silenced demons, which is not so surprising, but silenced demons from declaring who he was. And throughout John Mark's Gospel, we will hear Jesus tell those who he healed to tell no one else. Why? Jesus isn't merely being humble. It's not that Jesus is trying to avoid the spotlight. Jesus wants the crowds to listen to him, after all. Jesus warns the man, though, because Jesus knows human hearts. He knows that we are looking for a different Savior than the one that we need. And if we if word gets out about him too quickly among the crowds, the crowds will become uh, enamored. They will, they will put him into the spotlight for the wrong reasons. They won't just misunderstand his mission. They will disregard his mission for the sake of their felt needs. They will take his miracles without his call to repentance. They will take his healing without his preaching. They will put their faith in the signs of power instead of the sign of the cross. Jesus knows this, and Jesus knows that once he goes there, once he goes to the cross on Golgotha, the same crowds who have been healed and were once so enamored by him, they will be gone in a heartbeat. Certainly Jesus came to heal the crowds, and he, it is his will to heal them. But as we learned last week, He heals for a far more ultimate purpose. He heals to demonstrate something, his desire and his ability, not just to save, but to save us from an even more terrible enemy, our slavery and addiction to sin. And so he tells the man to be silent. The only one, again, he wants to know about the healing are the religious leaders who we're going to come to find out in the coming weeks are the ones most likely to write off Jesus entirely. He wants, in the words here, or almost a confrontation. He wants proof against them of his claims. But it turns out the 
man blatantly disregards Jesus' warning, and too many reading these verses here, I think, write this disobedience off as laughable, as quaint, as being the eager heart of an evangelist. But notice what John Mark tells us. This severely undercuts Jesus' ministry. The crowds clamoring for a miracle prevent Jesus from coming into the town. This means that be, what this means is that it prevents Jesus from coming and proclaim, making his mission clear. They are clamoring for a miracle, and they're only coming to him as a healer and not as a savior. Perhaps this is another reason for Jesus' anger. In fact, the phrase sternly charged is a word picture for anger. In the Greek language in which this is written, it literally means, it comes from the word for flared nostrils. <laughs> Isn't that a crazy picture? Somebody, what is somebody with flared nostrils feeling? They're feeling anger. It's Jesus is sending the man away angry, frustrated, knowing, I think, that this man will only disregard Jesus' warning. His miracles, why, while they are necessary and important. They are not why he came. He came to offer the kingdom of God through repentance and faith, which makes his next move all the more important. You see, what does Jesus do next? He changes places with the leper. Even as he welcomes the man from the margins, out to the margins, Jesus goes, out to the desolate places, out to the wilderness. Jesus, in a sense, marginalizes himself. I think, at least in some ways, he does so in order to identify with the marginalized, with the powerless and poor. He takes on our suffering, but there's an even more re important reason we talked about last week, that he goes out to the wilderness, and that is to align himself with God. He will obey one master, and it is not the crowds. And more importantly, he knows that to undo suffering, including leprosy, including racial discrimination, including all forms of injustice, he must experience the blows of injustice firsthand. I want us to listen to these words in Isaiah 53, and I want us to listen for the particular themes of injustice here. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they have made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. On the cross, Jesus endured injustice to end injustice. He experienced oppression to end oppression. He is slaughtered so that no more blood might be spilt. In the cross, Jesus exchanges our death for his life our suffering for his restoration. And, though, and through his resurrection from the grave, he has taken up a kingdom of justice, a kingdom where only justice and righteousness will reign, a king, kingdom where all this will be true and more. What better motive 
could we have to seek justice than to know this story? What better motive could we have to love mercy knowing that we received mercy? What more motive could we have to walk humbly with our God than seeing what our God has done to purchase us for himself? What more motive could we ask for than the gospel itself, friends? And in closing, I want you to know I recognize that for some of us, these are strange words to hear from a pastor. Again, I am restrained and in some ways set loose by God's word. I, I, I can only say what God himself has said. We, we all are going to have the Bible push back at us at some points. Are you willing to be wrong if the scripture reveals it? And so I'm gonna ask you to do something that may be kind of uncomfortable. I'm gonna ask you to read Psalm 10 with me. I'm gonna read these verses again, and I, there are perhaps three different ways that we need to read this. First, we may need to read this from a posture of repentance, recognizing that we have turned a blind eye to our neighbor, to the helpless, to those crying out for us to hear. And if we're reading the gospel, I mean, reading the, the the word of God which says that we were all enemies of God, we are reminded that we have contributed to injustice. We need to read this in some ways of repentance. Some of us need to read this as a cry out against the force of darkness. The forces of darkness is a battle cry that they will not win forever. And we will fight them so long as we have breath. The forces of darkness cannot stand before the justice of our king. And third, we can read this with hope that Jesus is the king over this new world and we long for him to return, that injustice may no longer reign. To read these verses. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you, you are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. Would you pray with me? And I'm going to read portions from a prayer by Pastor Scotty Smith. Dear Heavenly Father, there are times when it's good to get fed up and hacked off, to get red in the face and fire in the pants to get angry, not with mannish fury, but with holy rage, looking into the eyes of helpless victims of evil and hearing the sneer of arrogant agents of terror is just such a time. Today we take up the psalmist's impassioned cry, Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Holy Father, break the arm of the wicked and evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness that it would not be found out. I don't ask for such a thing with a haughty spirit of self-righteousness, but with an intense longing for the justice of your kingdom to flow like a river and your righteousness to be the never-failing stream which cuts its life-giving way through the earth because the gospel is true, because of you, Jesus, because not just your arm, but your whole being was broken for us and for the sin of the world, we pray with confidence, the Lord is king forever. The nations will perish from this land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. Psalm 10, verse 16 through 18. 
God be worshiped, adored, and served. Indeed, Lord Jesus, show us our place in your unfolding story of hearing the desire of the afflicted, of encouraging them, of listening to them, of defending the fatherless and rescuing the oppressed. Because of the cross, terror is terrified and one day will be no more. So very amen, we pray in your name with holy rage and humble gratitude. Amen.